Father, we thank you that you give us the privilege of gathering together, not just simply to enjoy one another's company, which we do, but especially to be in your presence. Uh, That's something that we cannot take for granted, that the God of the universe, the one who made all things out of nothing, uh, would ask us, invite us to be with him. That, Father, is amazing uh, to us. And the fact that it's only possible through your son, Jesus, only heightens our wonder. We thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word and to understand who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray that as we work our way through the catechism, that we would have a greater understanding of these things. And we ask all this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I understand that last week um, you all did get back into the catechism, starting to look at the questions there. And so you looked at questions 45 to 46, Um, So we're going to continue with 47 and 48. However, because it goes a unit, I want us to read 45 and 46. So I'm going to invite you to turn uh, either in your own personal copy of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I know you all keep in your breast pocket uh, or in your pocketbook. Uh, Say again? Or or memorized. That's right. You know, for the truly, uh, you know, those who are truly uh, holy, you've got to memorize down pat. But also, um, it is in your... Trinity Hymnal in the back around 870-ish, 872. So 872 gets us to, to questions 45 or 46. And before we jump in there, remember that, oh, let me turn this around so I can, there. We've been working our way through the Ten Commandments, and one of the things we said about the Ten Commandments is that they cover everything that God wants us to do. They are a summary of God's will for humankind, right? And we've been seeing, you'll allow me just a little bit in the way of um, review all the way back to December when uh, I last taught this, that we said that, yeah, you know, people tend to say that the first four commandments have to do with our duty to God and then the last six have to do with our duty to man. And that's not really a wholly satisfactory way of looking at it. Uh, it is true that one through four uh, have to do with our worship in particular, which obviously has to do with God. But it's how we serve God in worship. And then four, again, which covers both of these, talks about how we serve God so in reality they both have to do with um, with man and this is just something that we've talked about in other settings which is when we um, serve God we don't serve him directly in the sense of oh what does God need today oh you know he'd, he'd like to have his breakfast brought to him in bed so let's do that no we don't do that kind of service we actually serve God by serving other people which is why those commandments do deal with Human, you know, human beings, our relationship with other people. But they all have to do, uh, ultimately, with God. So that's an important thing for us to pick up on. Now, let's go ahead and read, and I'm going to ask if somebody will just read, for just for now, the first two, the ones that you did last week, 45 and 46. Can I have somebody read the question and answer? Okay, thank you. I just want us to look at the commandment before we look at um, the next, uh, next set of questions, because what we're going to do is we're going to see a pattern. And the pattern in the catechism is to state the commandment, 
then say what is required in that commandment. That's the positive. And then negative is what is prohibited. So last week, you looked at what was required. The questions we're going to look at today are going to talk about what is prohibited in the commandment. But I didn't want to just read that because then you would not have remembered, you know, you wouldn't have had the first commandment stated. So before we look at today's questions on what is prohibited, can I just say one thing? I know last week you covered this with Adam, but just to, um, to cover some of the key things, when it talks about, you know, in the first commandment that we are to have no other gods, you know, before me, God says, uh, it points out, obviously points to the fact that God is the only true God. The one thing that I don't know, tell me if this was already covered, um, what the first four commandments do, because we were talking about they, they show worship. So what the first commandment does is it tells us the object of our worship, that is to say who we are to worship. The second commandment tells us the manner of our worship. The third commandment tells us the attitude we are to have in worship. And then number four tells us about the time. So I just want us to see that in context and be able to pick up on that. So it's telling us here in the first commandment who it is that we are to worship and that there is only one true God. And as you looked at last week, uh, that essentially meant or means that all of life falls under this idea that you, you can't separate, you know, and say, here's my secular life and here's, if God is the only true God and you must acknowledge him and everything that you do, which is what the, the catechism question that was just read by Margaret Ann, what is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God. In other words, to have a personal relationship with him and to worship and glorify him accordingly. So what you saw last week that's so important is this principle, and this speaks to exactly what is going on in the evangelical world today, which is how, to what extent do we uh, exercise our faith? And there's a lot of discussion about this going on right now, all the way from Christian nationalism, theonomy, uh, two-kingdom theology. I don't know if any of this is ringing any bells. But it's the idea of what do I do when I'm not here? Okay, we all know we can come here, we can acknowledge who God is, and what the scripture says about him, but what happens when I go out there? When I go to my school, when I go to my workplace, when I'm with my neighbors, when I'm in uh, this discourse about uh, politics and you know what laws you know, you know and, and and policies are we to promote or to support uh, or to reject, and those are very very important questions. And what this commandment basically tells us is you are to acknowledge God in every area of your life. Now we're not going to see this until later uh, when we you know begin to talk about some of the specific things. Well, actually, no, we've already. <laughs> sorry, you can tell I've been out of it. We've already discussed this. Uh, the role of Jesus as our mediator. But one of the things that I like to put it as, you know, when we talk about what extent does Christ have in our life, um, let's see, orange, let's try orange. You've heard people sometimes say that, you know, we have priorities in our lives, and you've heard me use this example perhaps before, but you'll hear, you'll hear some people say the number one thing in my life, is that readable? Yeah, that orange not cutting it, Okay. We need other colors besides blue and black. But you'll hear people say stuff like, you know, your priority is God. Then what comes next usually? Family, next. 
Say again. That's not bad. That's not bad. Usually it's not what I hear, but it's not bad. Usually you hear something like country. Not country music, but country. You know, so God, family, country, that kind of thing. Um, and, and the problem with that is it says you give your priorities here and then here and then here. Notice God is a priority here. And yeah, he's your number one priority. But does he not play a role here or here? Or, you know, neighbors, I don't know, work? Whatever, you know, whatever list you have of things that you think are important. See, this is, this is the way very often we pre- we're presented that, and, and it's just an incorrect approach. The better way to think of it is that Christ, and, and sorry, this is not a wonderful illustration. I mean, my drawing is not great, but if Christ is a ring, think of Christ as a ring, as a hoop, and all these things are strands. Your family is a strand, and it passes through. You know, your work is a strand, it passes through. Your recreation is a strand, it passes through. Everything has to pass through the ring of Christ and be informed and under the lordship of Christ. And if we understand that, that really is where the first commandment is going. So there isn't just a prioritization. It's that God, and of course Jesus is God, and that's, uh, we, we don't know God apart from Christ. Um, everything that we think is important, our politics, our <clears throat> education, our work, all that, our family, all that must pass through the ring of who Christ is and be informed by it. So that's an important thing. And um, I'm going to leave this little review that we're doing by reading something that, again, um, I suspect maybe Adam brought up. But um, we're going to have to have a Sunday school class at some point to deal with a phenomenon that's been going around in circles. And again, um, you know, if you're not looking at the interwebs on this stuff, you're not going to be familiar with it, and that's not a bad thing. But if you have been, there's been a lot of talk about two-kingdom theology. Anybody heard of that? Is that ringing any bells? Uh, we probably need to have a discussion to, to deal with um, what that really means. And it's interesting that G.I. Williamson, his discussion on the catechism says this. He says, it is this great truth that God is supreme over all and that all of life is religion that distinguishes consistent Christianity from so much that is found in the world even under the Christian name. So all of life is to be, you know, uh, as he puts all of life is religion in, in the sense of our faith. He goes on, those who have come to see what this first commandment means will no longer think of life as a two-compartment affair with religion in one compartment and the rest of life in the other. And that is precisely what today's manifestation of two-kingdom theology does and teaches. And it is in that respect quite wrong. So we will deal with that maybe in a future Sunday school class. Uh, For now, I just wanted to note its reference here to the first commandment. But with that, let's get to what we really were going to talk about today, setting all this in standard, which is the second set. This We're going to move now to the prohibition, and that's questions 47 through 48. Before I do that and ask somebody to read, if somebody will read 47 and 48, do I have any questions about this little review from the first part of the first commandment? No? All good? That means it's absolutely crystal clear, or I've not made any sense at all. Okay. Can somebody read 47 and 48, please? 
All right, thank you so much, Tanya. So what you see here um, is really a restatement of the question, uh, rather of the answer of what is required. It just puts it in the negative and prohibit. Now, that's going to be a little different as we get into other... You're going to say, well, what use is that? I could have easily inferred, do this and don't not do this. You know, is, is uh, maybe not adding as much value as you might think. With the other commandments, it'll, it'll be more different in, in that regard. But this one is basically saying, hey, uh, the first one said, you know, the, the requirement is that you acknowledge him and you worship and glorify him. And this one says it's a sin to not acknowledge him and therefore to not glorify, uh, to not worship and glorify him. So it's just basically a negative restatement of it. Uh, the last question, I want to take that up just briefly because when it says I, you're to have no other gods before me, some people have... Um, and apparently they were still they were thinking that in the 1640s as well when they wrote this. Some people thought, well, that means that no other God before me as a numerical order. So that, you know, you have, you know, God's got to be the number one God. Oh, well, you know what? There we go. Um, this thing right here. You can have God be number one, but then you can have other gods. Because, by the way, you can make a God out of family and out of country and out of neighbors and out of work and out of whatever else. Uh, or they can be named gods. You know, you can have Baal and Shemosh, you know, or whatever you want to do. Um, so th- the problem with that view is that God is saying, I've got to be the first. But that's not what the, the catechism question, or really what the uh, commandment is saying. It's not that you have to have God first. Is that God is first and last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's everything. So uh, the before me, as they explain here, does not mean no one leapfrogs ahead of me. But what he means by before me is this very thing. God is aware of everything. Do not bring any of this into his presence. And since he is everywhere and he can see everything, then you are to eliminate you know, any, of, any rivals uh, completely. So that's an important point to just bring up. Um, that is not a problem when you look at um, uh, the commandment in its original form, uh, written in Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's very clear what it means. But in the English, before me can mean those two different things. Before me as an order or in my presence. And the catechism question uh, teaches us that what it actually means is God sees all things. He knows all things. You just simply don't do this because he is aware of any any rival that you might put up uh, to him. Does that make sense? You see where we're coming from there? Okay. So let's really jump into question 47. That's really where we want to go. What does it mean that we do not acknowledge God? And I'm going to do it under three headings. Uh, Can I start doing some erasures here? We've got this thing down. We all know that this is the ring that we need to have. So we're going to talk about ways in which we deny that we fail to acknowledge God in all of life, because that's what we saw in the first commandment. And the first thing I want to talk about is the danger of syncretism. Somebody like to define syncretism? Yeah, I think you, you, you use those words, blending, fusing, right. It's the idea to take that which we would say is true, let's say biblical, and merge it, blend it in some way, tie it into something else. And that happens all throughout church history. We see it again and again and again. Uh, you're basically trying to harmonize what the scripture teaches with other things. Um, we see it, for example, in the history of the church in places like um, uh, when, uh, when the first explorers arrived here in uh, North America, or uh, not just North America, but the Americas as a whole. 
And so they would say, well, you guys worship you know, these gods. We're gonna tie these gods and these different characters that you have uh, to the saints. And you know, we'll, we'll try to show that these two things are, are compatible. And so you've been used to worshiping this, sa- uh, this, this god and that creature and you know, whatever, but that's actually, this is Saint, you know, uh, this is Saint Barbara and this is you know, Saint Joseph and, and whatever and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. That's a pretty um, gross, if you want to put it that way, example of syncretism, but it's one that actually happened quite a bit, and the repercussions of it are felt today. If any of you have traveled, for example, throughout Latin America, you can go to the Andes, you can go to Peru, you can go to Ecuador, uh, for example, Bolivia, uh, and you can um, talk to folks who are involved in, uh, who, who are um, Andean, um, you know, and some of the folks that are very clearly in, in their looks and in their um, in their practice, very much are the descendants of of uh, those would have been um, Incas, uh, not Mayans or Aztecs. <clears throat> and when you see their practice, they're all very devout Roman Catholics. But their Roman Catholicism is, in essence, uh, just a continuation of of much of what they did pre the arrival of of you know Christianity. And uh, then if you can go to places now like um, the Yucatan, now we've jumped to Mexico, now you're looking at the Mayans, um, and so on. Um, You'll see there's a movement now of folks who are basically sloughing off the Christian part and saying, why don't we just return to our Mayan religious roots? Because it's so clear that they never never had a clear uh, Christian understanding of things or practice. It was always this melding. And some of you know, you know, I've told you in the past of things that, you know, my earlier parts of ministry that we did dealing with uh, certain things in the occult, things like Santeria, which is uh, a, a Cuban-African, uh, when black slaves were taken to the Caribbean, same thing you find in Puerto Rico, I say Cuban, but they have the same thing in other parts, uh, Dominican Republic and so on. Uh, black slaves were taken who worshiped certain gods. They basically took those gods and said, this god is really this saint, and so on and so on. Uh, yeah, yeah, because what you see Paul doing, which is uh, an important point, and maybe, you know, something we can discuss um, in a class on apologetics or something, is you find common ground. Everyone is made in the image of God, and so we all have certain things. We can never be completely divorced from God. Even the most, you know, rank atheist is still made in the image of God and still needs to worship and still, you know, so you find those things, those touchstones that you can use to connect. And that's what Paul is doing. But yeah, he doesn't sit there and say, to make it easier for you, I'm going to go ahead and say, Zeus is God the Father. But Mercury is Peter, you know, <laughs> or something like that. Um, he doesn't do that, right? And that's, that's the real concern. Now that's the, the, the really obvious kind of thing of syncretism. But syncretism presents itself in much more subtle ways today. Um, look at something like the, the Freemasons. I don't know if you're familiar with masonry. Uh, all, the, um, uh, all the reform denominations that are in NAPARC, the North American Presbyterian Reform Council, you know, PCA, OPC, RPCNA, uh, the URC, uh, various Korean ones, and, and so on. Every last one of them has uh, pron- you know, made pronouncements or statements or whatever on Freemasonry. And today, Freemasons are probably not as prevalent and as public. Does, 
so you know, maybe, maybe some of the young folks might not even be as familiar with Freemasons. Does that ring a bell? Do you guys know what, ever heard of Freemasons? So yeah, if this were 1950, they would be much more prevalent. And you'd see, you know, Mason Lodges and that. Not saying that they're not around anymore. But um, in Freemasonry, when you come into it, they basically, well, let's see if I can, don't want to take up too much time, but... Um, So like in their teaching, they say that, um, that what they have to do is they, they focus on that, na- quote, that natural religion in which all men agree. And so you can be a Jew, you can be a Christian, you can be a Muslim, you can be a Buddhist, you can be whatever. But they water down everything so that there is nothing supposedly offensive. Now, how do you water down Christianity? What must you remove? Jesus, that's it. You have to. That's the only way that you could work with somebody else and claim that you're all worshiping the same God, right? Isn't that how that works? Um, It's basically saying that all the different gods that are being worshiped uh, are equal. You know, we've gathered with our friends in the mosque over the years, over the last 18 years, and and you've heard me perhaps tell the story, but there was one time early on in that when they would invite us over and they would invite other neighbors and, you know, uh, it's when they do their Ramadan kind of thing. And it was one time where I was at one of the tables and we had there myself, <clears throat> we had two mainline Protestants from one of the Methodist churches in town. Um, we had guys from the Baha'i Temple, that's on 2499. We had uh, representatives from the Mormon church, the one that's right around the corner that way, and um, two represent, three representatives, but two of them at the table from the synagogue uh, down on Morris, which is the only synagogue in Denton County, and of course, several of the, the folks from the mosque, and then you had myself. And, you know, it's all cordial discussion. We're all enjoying each other's company, interesting people, and so on. And as we got into the discussions, in the end, you know, we were all, everybody was talking about, oh, how much we have in common until we got to the one sticking point. And what was that one sticking point? It was, again, Jesus. Because in the end, Jesus does not allow you to grab a hold of him, at least the Jesus of Scripture. You know, if you want to ignore things like many of the mainline churches do and everything, oh, Jesus didn't really say that. That's not the historical Jesus. That's Paul who, who must have created that, but... If you look at the biblical Jesus, he will not allow you to hold him. First commandment, he will not allow you to hold him in one hand and hold anything else in the other. It's him or nothing. Absolutely. So this is an important thing. You know, what you see the Freemasons doing is um, something that any, any of you who have been in the military will know this as well. The idea of having chaplains with civil religion. I served in the chaplaincy for a while. And, you know, you see this idea of having a civil religion where we can have prayers that are non-sectarian, that kind of thing. It's an attempt to basically syncretize and say that what everybody is doing is equal. But the problem is the scripture does not allow it, right? First Timothy, one, uh, First Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, right? So there's only one way you can know the true God, and that's through Christ, or how about John fourteen six, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Now that's a that's a, a verse that you have to deal with. Our friends next door do not worship 
the same God that we worship. They worship no true God at all. They may think so. They say that it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Muhammad. But the fact that they reject the Son means that they cannot know the true God. Um, and that sounds harsh. And, we, and of course, you know, today's uh, climate of religious tolerance and everything, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, you're like, oh, you're denying. I look, I'm not denying anything. I'm telling you what God says. That because Jesus is the only mediator, the one true prophet, remember he prophet, king, uh, prophet, priest, and king, and he alone reveals the Father. And he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes except through me, you see. So we can have no fruition of God. We cannot know him. We cannot experience him. We cannot have a relationship with him outside of Christ. This applies to our Jewish friends. This applies to any and every other person that's out there. So what's being prohibited here in the first commandment, the first thing is this danger of syncretism. And it would be so easy to look and say, yep, you know, you've got Masons going off and doing that and civil religion, you know, when they, when they bring in chaplains to pray at a political event. You've got the Roman Catholics doing all that. Thank goodness we evangelicals never do that. Except we're one of the worst offenders, right? When you go to all the, char- the, the, the big box churches with their performance-oriented worship services, what have we done? Let's take one thing, okay? It may not be the worship of Chango, African god, who we then say is Santa Barbara, which is what they do in, um, in Santeria, right? Again, that's, that's the, the, the kind of gross, obvious syncretism that we all sit there and say, oh, that's bad, we shouldn't do that. But we sit there and we take other values that our culture idolizes, right? Money, fame, success, a lot of those things, and we meld it with our Christianity and a lot of what's happening in uh, modern day evangelicalism is that the, 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 our culture loves performance, our lo- culture loves entertainment, our culture loves um, basically ther- therapy, therapeutic stuff, uh, you know, there's no sin, I'm, it's, it's something, you know, I can't help it, I have this condition or I have this, um, this phobia or this neurosis or this whatever, you know, all these different things and evangelicalism aids and abets all that with a lot of the modern day practices that we see. So what is that if not syncretism? We've taken the values of our culture, it's a managerial and therapeutic culture and we've married it to church. So there's the danger of syncretism. Uh, I can say a whole lot more, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop there. Oh, I, I will say one thing. Second John, that little letter at the end. Second John, verse 10. doesn't have any chapters. So it's just Second John 10. Actually goes to say that because of this, because we're not to bring these things together, um, it means we cannot have fellowship with folks who are not Christians. Now, when we use the word fellowship, most of us think of it in, as a, just a social interaction. Right? We, the fellowship meal. We're going to have a meal after church today. The fellowship meal. So that just means we're going to hang out and so on. If you look at fellowship that way, which is not really the biblical uh, use of the term, 
then again, that sounds awfully harsh. Are you saying I can't have a friend who's a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist? Not at all saying that. The scriptural word for fellowship, which uh, I'm not going to come, obviously I'm not back in my full uh, uh, set of duties today, so I'm not preaching. Dave will be here, Lord willing, and we'll be preaching today. But um, when I come back, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6. I'm not done working through it, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to discuss the biblical uh, definition of the word fellowship. Well, it does have a social aspect to it. The word itself actually means partnering with and having the kind of relationship like you do with a brother or a sister. So that is what Second John verse 10 is talking about. You cannot go and call that person a brother, right? When I was in the chaplaincy, one of the first guys that I worked with was a Mormon um, chaplain. I don't know what they called him, a pastor. I don't, they don't actually have, have pastors, but religious official or whatever. And um, I cannot sit there and say, that's one of my brothers. I could say that of some of the other guys, the Southern Baptists or, you know, one of the others. Uh, even we might have differences. We might have things that we could butt heads with, but I could not have said, this is one of us, uh, that kind of thing. So just want to mention that. Okay, let's press on. Is there any questions or any mention about, any comments about anything that we've discussed? Yes, Leng. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, you know, God tells them, well, God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They don't want my kingship. They want the world's version of kingship. They wanted the power, the prestige, and, you know, uh, they thought the glory that would come with that. That's exactly what evangelicals are doing today. So, yeah, I think you nail it right on the head. All right. Was there anything else that I missed? Anybody? Next danger. So this is the danger of religious tolerance. What? What? That's the one thing you cannot do today. You cannot be intolerant. Everything is tolerated but intolerance, right? Uh, it's, that's our culture. Look at it. So what, what are we talking about here? It's a wrong-headed attitude of tolerance. And uh, in one respect, I guess I kind of already referred to it. It's the idea that intolerance, you basically... Um, just step back and say, hey, look, we're going to permit this to exist without any kind of, um, you know, confronting or engaging. Uh, now, we're not talking about, um, you know, any, any kind of uh, um, use of force or anything like that. But, you know, if we look at the mosque or if we look at the Mormon uh, temple building, whatever that's down there, if we look at the you know, the Baha'i temple or the Jewish synagogue and just simply say, hey, to each their own, uh, let's, let's tolerate that. Then we have denied who God is. We have denied what he's called us to do, which is to share our faith. So we're not talking about using force. We're not talking about crusades, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, they, they absolutely have a right in terms of civil liberties, um, to choose, you know, whatever they want to do in regard to, to religion. But we as Christians, and we as Christians should defend, I should say, their right uh, to choose whatever religion they want. That's not the point we're talking about. But in terms of our duties, uh, we can't just sit there and say, hey, look, you know, he goes to church. How many times have I heard that from somebody? Yeah, you know, she left or he left, whatever the church, but at least they're going to, and you fill in the blank. It, it, Really? You know, and we sit there and say, at least, 
What does it matter when you stand before God, the person who sits there and says, well, I completely rejected you and I walked away from you and I don't care for you, or the other person who said, I, you know, I, I was involved in this false religion. Both of them, God is gonna sit there and say, yeah, sorry, that's not gonna cut it. So if we truly love them, if we truly care about them, we will do the hard part, which is to go to them with the gospel. Again, remember, and actually, if we do get a, have a discussion of 2K, two-kingdom theology, we will discuss the proper way of understanding. The church has a sphere of sovereignty, as Calvin and Luther and those guys understood. Uh, and the tools that were given are simply the tools to use an old term of moral suasion, which means to say, we talk to people, and that's it. We don't have the power of the sword. That is something that belongs to the civil government. So we don't go to our friends and whack them over the head with a Bible or any other instrument, you know, and drag them into the church. But we do talk to them lovingly about Christ. And we can't just sit back and say, it's all right. He's a Mormon. That's close enough. Okay, so that's the danger of religious tolerance. Does that make sense? I'm just looking at our time and I'm probably say more, but we won't. Okay. And then the other one that we want to talk about, and you can see the difference between these, right? In syncretism, you're trying to take true biblical Christianity and meld it with something else. Religious tolerance, you recognize that this is wrong, but you're just going to basically let them do their own thing. And then there's one other danger. that we fall into nowadays. And that's the danger of neutrality. And this one is huge. It's this, this um, <clears throat> false conception in our culture that you can actually have a neutral space, a neutral position that there is a place where you can sit there and say, okay, you're not syncretizing, you're not trying to um, meld things together. You're recognizing that these guys hold to their views, and these guys hold to their views, and these guys hold to their views, and we hold to ours, but that we can find a common space where we can leave behind those things we can hold to and we can find neutral ground. Now, almost everything today in the public square is built on that premise that we can have neutral um, versions of different things. So we can have public schooling that is neutral. It will not be sectarian. It will not bring in prayer, you know, to God, whether it be the Muslim God Allah, whether it be, you know, uh, the Christian understanding of God or so on. So we can do that in public schools. And then we can have you know, uh, policies that we can pass in Congress uh, that are neutral and do not bring in any different particular Christian views. I ask you the question, first of all, does that make sense? Is that a, a um, um, accurate representation of what our culture says that it's striving for? Okay. Can it be possible? I'm not asking whether we're succeeding because we're clearly not succeeding. The question is, is it possible to have a neutral space for education, for politics, or so on? You're shaking your head, no. Two of you shaking your head, no. Any yeses? Nobody's gonna defend religious neutrality? 
the whole basis of our society in the last 60 years? Ooh, okay, I was going to say, why do you believe it's not? Unpack that for us. But see, can't I have that? You're calling it C. Why can't I have a C that works? So let's, let's take politics. Say again? Sure, which, again, if, if we're to be Christian in all areas of our life, let's take politics. What do we do with abortion? Is it possible to have a discussion about abortion that is neutral? Why not? So in other words, some people are going to sit there and say, you're not taking a life, is, and that's a religious position. It is. I mean, you know, and, and you can't just answer it and say, no, it is taking a life, because you bring in your own values. There's no way, there's no neutral value um, in a discussion on abortion, okay? Gay marriage. Yeah. So in politics, it does not seem to be any meaningful legislation or policies where we can uh, just say that there's a neutral understanding that everybody can hold to. It is, in fact, a, a moral position that somebody takes. Okay, how about education? Can, uh, you know, we've got some high school students here, some college students here. Uh, some of you at one time were in school even. Uh, we've been around a little older. Uh, is it possible to teach? Can't we teach math? Surely we can teach math in a neutral, right? Can we teach math in a neutral setting? I, I think you both are bringing things. What you're saying, Lane, is can I teach two plus two equals four? Probably. If I just, yeah, if I skip Common Core, because then it can be five or six or whatever, because we all know that that's racist to actually insist that it's uh, actually four. But I think what Tanya is getting at is correct. If you're teaching an education, you want to do... I mean, an education, presumably, uh, I realize that that's being challenged by what passes for education today, but education should be more than just a mere presentation of facts, right? It should be much more than just simply memorizing. You want to learn how to think. Now, if you've noticed, there's been a very, very clear um, push. Maybe that's, I'm trying to think of another word, but I can't at the moment. Um, since the 60s in education, and it's really ratcheted up on this side of, uh, of the 21st century to get you to not think. We do not want people who think. We want people who simply emote. They just feel, and that's why you can turn on TikTok and you can see somebody, uh, you know, driving their car and all of a sudden, you know, going, you know, and having one of those little uh, TikTok meltdowns that have become fodder for memes and everything else. Because we don't want you to think. We don't want you to see things in context. We don't want you to know history and connect all those you know, different dots. But ideally, an education teaches you how to think because it will never teach you every fact that you need to know. But if we teach you how to think, you can then go out and you can get it out there. So you know, when we deal with things like literature, history, and so on, you can clearly see that they have moral values attached to them. And so you want to teach that from a perspective you know, of of either Christian perspective, or again, there's no neutral perspective, so you're going to choose another perspective. But when it comes to science and math, people tend to think that that can be neutral. Anybody, one of the wonderful things, there aren't too many wonderful things about this, but one of the wonderful things of the lockdowns is that it completely exposed what many of us already knew, which is the scientific and medical community are just as biased 
and have to make interpretations, Tanya's word there, as everybody else, and they will let their agendas, in this case, the money that grants that gives them their grants, um, is is what drives that. We've long known this, but I think people are beginning to wake up and see it. Uh, so you you know, if you're going to deal with the beginning of the world, you're going to either deal with it on an evolution side or a creation side or, you know, something. You can't have religious neutrality. And then when you come to something like two plus two equals four, if you're, turning, if you're training people to think, this is usually taught along the lines of also understanding logic. And before you know it, the question is, where does this come from? And see, like, I can tell you, I can look outside and I can see those leaves and say those leaves, at least those that haven't shed or whatever the right term is, those are green. And, you know, I can tell you, well, that's because chlorophyll in the, in the leaf makes it green. Well, what is that? You know, is it really green? Well, no, my eyes are able to receive uh, the light of that particular spectrum and, you know, and so on and so on. I can explain all that. But an unbeliever sees that all as just, it just so happened because of evolution and natural forces and all this other stuff. Even though that's not stated, that's what's behind it. Whereas a believer would sit there and say, God designed it, he designed the eyes to be able to receive those rays, et cetera, et cetera, and be able to capture those, that spectrum of, of the electromagnetic, you know, um, I mean, that particular part of the spectrum of the electromagnetic entire spectrum and so on. And so on. it's a completely different rationale behind it. And the same thing comes with two plus two equals four. God didn't, um, didn't have to, you know, make it this way. But because he is a God of order and a God of logic, he designed it and so on. And it's a very different approach. Uh, there are people, seriously, if you look at this, seriously questioning now whether math is real or not. And the whole racism thing, while we laugh and we say, oh, it's so stupid. There are people, you know, you're paying for them. They're at Texas A&M. And I'm sorry, I know that's the most conservative of the state schools, which is why I mention it, because they're pretty much off the rails. Uh, a lot, they just took a little longer to get there, but you know they're along with all the others that are telling you that maybe this is just a construct and it's not real. So that itself is a religious uh, presupposition. You're going to defend Texas A&M? Oh yeah. Uh, you know the military. Um, uh, I went through uh, chaplain training in 1994, so I guess that's 30 years now. And um, one of the things that we were being taught was, um, and some of you guys are a little older, uh, certainly Scott, you might remember this, one of the classes or workshops that chaplains were being trained to do was called Values Clarification. Does that name ring any bell? So we were supposed to go and help people clarify their values. In essence, what we were really being told, and it was so obvious if you were looking, the guys loved it. It's like, oh, this is going to let us all get along. No, Values Clarification was essentially tell everybody to hide their Christian faith. Stop. In essence, what it came down to is stop saying Jesus. You don't say Jesus when you pray. You don't say Jesus any other time. Uh, keep that to yourself. Let's all worship a, a vanilla God who's out there. And you, and basically it was the beginning of tolerance, you can hold to whatever you hold to so long as it doesn't harm anyone. Now that sounds very practical. Now, I say Jesus is Lord, and what do people say now to say? That harms me, stop it, stop it. And so we are uh, beat into submission. Oh, I better not, and, you know, that kind of thing. Our culture has been very, very effective at uh, neutralizing 
Christianity, and it wants to do that. False religion wants to neutralize true religion because if you can be silenced, then in essence, you are allowing these other views to come forward. Okay, I'm gonna end by just saying, because we've gone a little bit over time, that in the end, neutrality is not possible. What does Jesus say in Luke eleven twenty three? He that is not with me is against me. Again, you have to deal with what Jesus says. Oh, that's so intolerant, John. I'm just telling you what Jesus says. Your argument is with Scripture. Your argument is with Jesus. But that's not the Jesus I worship. Okay, great, you want to make your own Jesus, personal Jesus, there's a whole song about that. Go off and do that. But the real Jesus, when you meet him, is not going to play those games. So the whole idea is religious neutrality is impossible. So that's, um, let's just end it there. Those are the three dangers we have to watch out for when we talk about what's prohibited in the first commandment. Danger of syncretism, the danger of religious tolerance, the danger of neutrality. Okay, any last uh, comments we want to make? Questions? You won't be able to go into worship or into the week without having those cleared up? No. Thank you. I'm glad to be back, even if it's just uh, uh, a little bit at this point. All right, then let's go ahead and close with worship. Look, I was so, I mean, with prayer, I am so out of it. I even brought the wrong case. This is not gonna work when I have to get up there and do the Lord's Supper. Ah, that shows you how out of the game I am. But let's pray and uh, we'll get ready for worship. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you love us enough that even in our sin, uh, you have come uh, and uh, you have pursued us and you've pursued us really um, with a ferocious love that will not let us go. That ultimately is what we see in Jesus. And you've, you've pursued us with the desire of making us what we were meant to be, which is a people who live in a very particular way, a way that is not restrictive, but actually is conducive to human flourishing. And you've laid out how we are to live that way in the Ten Commandments. We thank you, Father, for the clear instruction that they give. Of course, Father, we confess our complete and utter inability to keep those to an extent that merits that we be your, your children. And so we thank you that Christ has done it in our place, that he has lived a life in perfect accordance with the Ten Commandments and never, ever, ever deviated from them at all. And Father, we rest on his merit and his goodness for our status and our standing with you. But that said, Father, we know that you are at work uh, through your spirit to conform us increasingly to the image of Christ that we might become, uh, in fact, people who do keep the commandments. And we recognize that this first commandment really lays the stage for all the others because it calls us to live all of life recognizing that your son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh and with, without whom we cannot know you, that he is indeed Lord over all things. Help us, Father, to uh, recognize that and then help us, Father, to even more Uh, more difficult to live it out consistently we thank you that you forgive us when we fail we thank you that you enable us through your spirit to do so and so we entrust ourselves to you asking this in jesus name amen